Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Galatians 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, what if someone is caught in a sin? Then you who are guided by the Spirit should correct that person. Do it in a gentle way, but be careful. You could be tempted to carry one another's heavy load. If you do, you will give the law of Christ its full meaning. If you think you are somebody when you are nobody, then you are fooling yourselves. Each of you should put on your own actions to the test. Then you will take pride in yourself. You won't be comparing yourselves to somebody else. Each of you should carry your own load. Galatians 1-6 through Those who are taught the word must share all good things with their teacher. Don't be fooled. You can't outsmart God. A man gathers a crop from what he plants. Some people get to please their sinful nature. From that nature, they will harvest death. Others plant to please the Holy Spirit. From the Spirit, they will harvest eternal life. Let us not become tired of doing good. At the right time, we will gather a crop if we don't give up. So when we can do good to everyone, let us do it. Let us make a special point doing good to those who belong to the family of believers. All right, well, we are in the very last uh, week uh, of our Galatians series, and I want to say a special thank you to Jaden and Addie for doing such a great job um, in reading our passage for this morning. Uh, if you can believe it, our Galatians series began on January 24th, uh, so it's been a really fun journey, and uh, in case you haven't been with us that entire time, I do want to spend just a, a moment catching us up to Galatians chapter 6. And so Paul wrote the letter of Galatians because a false gospel had snuck into the region of Galatia, and believers in Christ were starting to believe this alternative gospel. Uh, this false gospel said this, uh, if you want to inherit the promises of God, you must adopt Jewish customs and practices, uh, namely circumcision. Uh, Paul calls those who are proclaiming this false gospel uh, agitators. And so you get this, uh, the, the, the tone of Galatians is very much that, that Paul is frustrated and he's agitated with uh, what is going on in Galatia. And so Paul offers, uh, in light of this alternative gospel, he offers uh, what the, the, the true gospel. Uh, he offers this message. He says, being a benefactor of God's promises has nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with faith. In fact, he says, faith in Christ gives you a new personal identity and a new corporate identity. Uh, because God calls to Himself, calls us to himself, and then he calls us into a community. Uh, so whenever God calls us to himself, he always also calls us into a community. And so when we place our faith in Christ, we're given not only a new personal identity of who I am in Christ, but we are also given a brand new corporate identity as well. And this new corporate identity is, in fact, the church, the capital C church, the global church, the church universal, as some say. Uh, this is, in fact, the new community that God is building based on faith in Christ. And so in other words, he's not building a new community based on ethnicity or law observance, but rather he is building this new community on faith. And Gentiles, 
those who are not Jewish are, in fact, Paul says, full members of God's new community. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ erases all the typical social boundaries uh, that we tend to follow, such as race, income, uh, gender, or social status. And so Paul ultimately comes to say, therefore, we are free in Christ. We are free from sin and the law, but perhaps more importantly, we are free to live without and, and to love without these boundaries. We are free to love uh, without boundaries. For as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, what counts is faith expressing itself through love. However, uh, and this is what we learned last week, freedom in Christ requires life in the Spirit. Uh, or we'll use our freedom for self-indulgence. Uh, freedom in Christ requires life in the Spirit, or we are, are prone to use our freedom for self-indulgence. Uh, and so we must live by the Spirit. What we get to in, in chapter 6 is Paul's very practical advice to a community that is living by the Spirit. Uh, remember, I, I've said throughout this series that Paul's theology is always practical theology. In other words, he's not just giving us all these truths about uh, Jesus Christ or the work of Christ on the cross or the, uh, the truth of the gospel. He's not giving us those things just for their own sake or just so we have greater head knowledge or just so we even have better wisdom. Paul is always giving us theology for the purpose of applying it to our lives. So all theology for Paul is practical theology. And so what we get in chapter 6, after lots and lots of theology in chapters 1 through 5, is essentially Paul's uh, very practical application of the truths that he has expressed. And he's giving them, uh, he's giving it to, for the purpose of the whole community. Uh, in other words, uh, the, these truths can be personally applied, but I think greater on Paul's heart is how do we apply them as a community? How do we apply them as the church? Uh, and so I want to point out three things from this passage. Uh, I want to jump also into about verse 15 as well. Uh, but I want, to, I want to look at some advice of, of Paul, from Paul uh, about, the about how a community lives life in the Spirit. Uh, and, and the first thing is the community is called to restore the sinner gently. To restore the sinner gently. So the first evidence of life in the Spirit for the community is that they will or at least they should, gently restore anyone caught in sin. And so the focus of this verse in this passage, uh, right from the very beginning, is on restoration. Now that's a big word, isn't it? Restoration. Uh, in fact, kiddos, on your notes, it says it asks you to define restoration in your own words. So let me help you out. Uh, restoration is this giant word, uh, but it comes, uh, the root word is restore. And to restore is to take something that was broken and make it new again or, or fix it. Uh, but in fact, restoration goes beyond just fixing something. It actually goes uh, beyond that to making something brand new. And so you take something that is broken and then you make it new again. That is restoration. And I want to tell you today, church, that the character of God is all about restoration. That if you want to know what the heart of God is about... The heart of God is about restoration. Because Jesus Christ on the cross reconciled the world to himself so that we may be restored to proper relationship with him. God is, is working to restore the world and make all things new. 
And so the business that God is all about is, in fact, restoration. I love this song that we sang this morning called Brokenness Aside. It's about the God who, who sees us for all of our brokenness, but moves that brokenness aside, restores us, and out of our brokenness brings about something beautiful. There is, there is no greater picture of the character of God than when something is broken and then made new again and restored. That is, that is the heart of God through and through. And so what Paul says is if we are to be a, a church, a community that lives by the Spirit, then we ought to be about the business of restoration. Uh, but it comes with a warning, doesn't it? He says, watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Uh, now, when, when I read, read this, and I think this may be the case for you as well, but it's very easy to assume that Paul is saying, be careful. That when you are restoring someone who's been caught in sin, be careful that you don't fall into the same sin as they do. Uh, in fact, it's easy for us to assume that Paul is essentially saying this, make sure you don't dirty yourself with their sin. Uh, and while we may be quick to assume that, let's, let's sort of take that assumption against everything else that we've learned in Galatians and say, does that match? Does it fit what Paul is saying? Does it fit the heart of the gospel for Paul, all of a sudden, in his practical advice to say, you know, restore the sinner, but make sure their, your, their sin doesn't make you dirty. Paul wants to say, you're already dirty. Like, you're already broken. Just like they are. Uh, and, and so he's not saying that. And so what else could he be saying? If he's saying, don't allow their sin to make you gross or dirty or defiled, uh, then what, in fact, is he saying? And I want to I mention this. The focus, the thrust of this verse is intentionally weighted on the one who is called to restore, not the transgressor. In, in other words, these are words to the person who is seeking to restore the sin. These are not words about the, the person who has fallen into sin. And I think what Paul is doing is he's calling the person who is restoring, is doing the restoring, to watch out that he is tempted towards self-righteousness and a lack of love in the midst of restoration. And so he says we ought to restore those who are caught in sin because that's the very heart of God. But we ought to do it gently, and it comes with a warning. Be careful that you also aren't tempted to sin. And again, what he's not saying is, he's not saying don't be tempted that you fall into the same sin as they do. Make sure their sin doesn't make you dirty. What he's saying is, in the process of restoring them, and doing it with love, and doing it gently, be sure that you don't fall into the sin of a lack of love or the sin of self-righteousness. Because guess what? Without love for the person who has been caught in sin, you cannot restore them. You cannot help to restore them if, you are, if there is no love for that person. In fact, I would say, restoration cannot be your goal if you are thinking, I hope they get I hope they get what they deserve. I would also say to you that restoration cannot be your goal if you hold on to a self-righteous attitude that says, oh, I would never. And so you take whatever, whatever sin they have been caught in, and if, you, if your first response is a self-righteous attitude of, oh, I would never do that. Then Paul says, we probably aren't quite on the right road yet. I want to say this to you today. 
if you see someone and, and they've messed up, uh, they've been caught in a sin of, of, of whatever nature, if your first response is, I would never, and I would say to you, that is an utter failure to see your own brokenness. Um, but I also want to say this to you. Uh, it may be true that you would never do that. Your response of, oh, I would never, is probably true. You probably aren't tempted in that way. You, you aren't prone to that sort of uh, disease or sin or whatever that is going on in that, that person's heart. Uh, so it may be true that you would never do that, but there is it is very likely that you might do something that they would see just as, as just as grotesque. Does that make sense? The point that Paul is trying to make is we cannot be a, a place of grace if we hold on to self-righteousness. And so he says we ought to restore each other. We, well, we ought to do it gently. He says make sure that you yourself don't fall into sin, being the sin of self-righteousness or the sin of a lack of love. In fact, I would say, I would, I would go this far. I would say that it is almost as though that Paul is saying this. Trying to restore a sinner with a self-righteous attitude is worse than the transgression. Uh, now, we have a very difficult time with that, right? Because we have sort of like levels of sin and brokenness, and their brokenness is far worse than mine, and this, is, this one has far greater consequences. And, and I would want to say that, yes, the consequences of sin are not all equal. Uh, I agree with that. The consequences of sin are not all equal, but uh, but Paul wants to just, he's using very radical language as a way of moving us toward this reality that as a community, living by the Spirit, it will be marked by a radical grace. Are you with me? A community living by the Spirit will be marked by a radical grace and a desire to see those who are caught in sin restored. Uh, well, let's get down to verse 10. Uh, verse 10 says this. It says, Therefore, as we have every opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, Paul is closing down this letter. He's in the final sections of, of writing. Uh, and, and now he calls this, this new community of people made up of both Jew and Gentile, he calls this new community a family. And he uses that very particular word. It's the only time he uses it in the entire letter. But remember, the entire letter has been all about how there's no inner circle or outer circle of Christianity. It's not like, oh, you're Jewish, and so you're extra special in the family of God. Uh, there's, it's like it, that all of God's promises to the nation of Israel were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now God is building a new community called the church, and it doesn't have anything to do with your ethnicity. It has only to do with faith, and, so, and all people are equal members of it, and so that leads us to the crescendo of him now using this very particular word, you are a family of believers. I love that. This is absolutely appropriate language given the argument throughout the entire book. And now he makes it explicit. The people gathered together to worship Christ are family. I want you to know today that the people gathered together in this room are family. You may not know everyone's name. You probably don't. Some of you sit in the exact same chair, the exact same section every single week, and you may not get a chance to walk all the way over here. And some of you are always over here, and you may not get a chance during our greeting time to walk all the way 
over here uh, because we're wide and we're trying to be deep and wide, you know what I mean? But uh, we're, right now we're just wide. Um, and that's not a weight joke. Um, so, but the idea is that Paul is saying that by virtue of gathering together, we are family. By virtue of gathering together for the purpose of worshiping Christ, expressing our faith, growing in faith, he says we are family. And what he does is he uses this particular word in the context of caring for one another. Uh, the, the context here where he uses family is in the context of how we ought to be caring for one another, lifting one another up. In fact, he, he, he says uh, we ought to bear one another's burdens. And so he's in this, this context of talking uh, of caring for one another, and then he uses the word family. His overarching statement, though, is that we should do good to all people. But then he closes by saying, especially those who belong to the family of believers. See, again, the, the, the trouble is, is when we read the scripture, we come to it with all sorts of assumptions. And so when he says don't be caught in sin, we oftentimes assume that he means that we shouldn't be dirty by the person the other person's sin. And then when he says, especially the family of believers, what we often hear is we ought to care for all people as long as they're in the family of believers. Uh, we often hear that Paul is saying to us, we ought to care only for those who are in the family of believers. But that is not the case. And I want, us to, I want you to hear that clearly. Paul is not saying that we are to only care for those who are in the family of believers. He is rather saying that we are to care for all people. And we as believers in Christ are to, to, to do good to all people, ourselves included. And so I want to, what I want to say to you is this. The church is to be the place from which good deeds begin, but not end. The church is to be the place from which the good deeds begin, but it certainly is not to be the place from which the good deeds end. That is to say this. I believe that part of the reason that Paul calls us to bear one another's burdens is so that we can be, become well-versed in caring for others in the graceful community of the gospel. And he says, so if we can do well in caring for one another, then we are equipped then to take that care, that love, that concern, and that grace and move it outward to all people. Are you with me now? In other words, Caring for one another in the family of believers is a training ground for loving on the world. And so, church, if all we do is care for one another, we have missed it. We could be really good at caring for one another, loving one another, helping to meet each other's needs. In fact, I hear regularly of how just organically people are seeing a need and meeting it. And I love that about this church. But I just want to say to you that Paul, that the God's intention to us, as Paul points out here, is that when we're doing that, we, it is a training ground for taking that same love and concern and grace and mercy and taking it out into the world. Because there is a tremendous danger if all we ever do is care for one another to become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the Great Commission. And so for, for Paul, it is always a both and. 
It is a bear one another's burdens and then go out and love them. Bear one another's burdens, go out and love them. And so, the church is to be the place from which good deeds begin, but not end. And then let's look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this. Actually, I want to start reading in verse 12. Now, to those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, uh, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about their circumcision in the flesh. But may I never boast except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then here's verse 15. For neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is the new creation. Now, do you remember uh, what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 6? What, what we have here in verse 15 is actually an echo of what he has already said. Because in chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. But the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And now, echoing that in verse 15, he says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is new creation. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, which is it? Is a faith expressing itself through love, or is it new creation? Uh, and I think that's probably an argument that is of no value, right? What Paul is trying to do is move us away from the distractions of what the gospel is really about. And he's trying to say that we ought to be loving one another radically, and we ought to be looking forward to the new creation. Now, throughout Paul's letters, he refers to uh, this thing called new creation, or uh, what he also calls the age to come. And so what is he referring to when he says that? Uh, and and the, the answer is, he's referring to the coming of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. And I want you to think of the kingdom of God not as a floaty place up in the sky that you go to when you die, but I want you to think of the kingdom of God as the reign and the rule of Christ. That this is what the world is like when God is in charge. When God's will is being done perfectly, that's the kingdom of God. And, and throughout scripture we have evidence that the kingdom of God has already arrived on planet earth. Now, not yet in all of its fullness, but there are places in which we see glimpses, we see signposts of the way that God intends the world to be. That every time a sinner, in fact, is restored, that's the kingdom of God being expressed. Every time the hungry are fed, the kingdom of God is present. Every time there is forgiveness of sin, every time there is reconciliation of relationship, every time that there is a marriage that is hanging by a thread, and yet, it, it is rescued, and, and those that husband and wife are brought into intimacy once again. That is the kingdom of God being present in the world. And so, for Paul, there is this reality that we live in the overlap of the ages, that we see all the brokenness around in our world and all kinds of expressions of sin. But with that, and right alongside of that, we see all the evidences of the goodness of God, the will of God, and the ways of God being accomplished in the world. And so when Paul says new creation or the age to come, what he is referring to is that what is already here but not yet in all of its fullness will one day be fully realized. 
And so he says, this, this argument over circumcision or uncircumcision has no, uh, makes no difference, is of no consequence at all. What matters is new creation. It is the world in which God intends. It is God's world. It is the world promised in Revelation wherever tears gone and suffering is ended and death itself is no more. And so what does he mean then when he says what counts is new creation? What he is saying is that the new creation has in fact already arrived. It's not yet fully here, but it is here. And so if it has already arrived, then why would we go back to living in all of the old categories, all of the old identity markers, all the ways that belonged to the old world? He says the old world is passing by, it is going away, and a new world is dawning. And so when he says what counts as new creation, what he's encouraging Christians, the church, believers by faith to do, is begin to align our lives, not to the old world, but to the new one. Are you with me now? We are to be a people, in other words. We are to be a people. Oriented toward God's future. The, the new community of God called the church are to be people of God's future. We are to anticipate God's work in the world by the way in which we live. We are to work for the coming of the kingdom of God. Not understanding that it is not us who bring it or build it. What we do is participate in it. God is doing it. He's, he's invited us as participants. And so when, when he says what counts is new creation, he is encouraging this new community made of both Jew and Gentile, who he says you are now family. He says as a community, you are to be a people with an orientation toward God's future. A lot of times we are tempted to think that if we are people of God's future, we are no earthly good. But it is, in fact, the exact opposite for Paul. For Paul, having a heart oriented toward the future has everything to do with how we live today. That if we believe that in God's new world, the hungry, that no one will be hungry. It's not that the hungry will be fed. It's that no one will be hungry. That in, in anticipation of that day, we are to go and feed those who are if we believe that in God's good world, reconciliation will happen, then we are to work for reconciliation, which Paul makes explicit in 1 Corinthians. It's whatever we believe will come about in God's new world, that we are to be about that right now, today, to be working for God. Because the church is called to embody God's future. So Paul's Practical advice to this community is to be all about restoration. To recognize that you are a family, regardless of your, uh, regardless of your ethnicity, your level of income, your gender, your social status, your level of education. All of those things don't matter. You are a family gathered together for the purpose of worshiping Christ and being formed by Him. And then he says, as a community, we are to be oriented toward the future. And so in closing this series on Galatians, I would just say this to you. Church, let us love without boundary. Let us live by the Spirit. And let us show the world that there is a new king. 
and that he is bringing about a new world. In fact, I want to read and leave you again with the words of Paul from Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Church, let us not become weary in doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest as long as we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of God.